What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. While touring through Milan in 1816, Lord Byron visited the museum collection of the Biblioteca Ambrosiana. Byron found himself entranced by one particular exhibit, handwritten letters from over 400 years earlier, between a poet and his lover, Lucrezia Borgia. The letters were displayed under glass, along with a lock of Lucrezia's famous blonde hair that she had cut off, in this case, to send her paramour along with one of the letters. Lord Byron being Lord Byron, he couldn't resist the urge to look around, be sure no one was watching, and then take some of the hair for himself. Byron could never resist a woman or the glamour of fame. And Lucrezia Borgia was famous. In her lifetime, she was a central figure in the Italian social scene, the illegitimate daughter of a man who would then go on to become the Pope. She was a member of one of the era's most powerful families, the Borgias. Even while she was alive, rumors about Lucrezia spread wildly. But after her death especially, she became a larger-than-life figure, a Lady Macbeth villainess, a conniving poisoner, a usurper, a man-eater. Famously, Lucrezia Borgia was said to have owned a ring where instead of a stone, there was a hollow chamber that she could fill with powdered poison in order to surreptitiously murder her enemies. For the record, there's no evidence that that actually existed. Though political murders were happening all around her, several at the behest of her family, there's no actual evidence that Lucrezia was involved in any of them at all. It's rare for me in an episode of Noble Blood to come to an understanding that a figure or any historical event is less interesting than most people understand it to be. But in Lucrezia Borgia's case, it might be true. The rumors and speculation around her in the centuries since her death have loomed so large that in researching her life, I felt not unlike a Renaissance artist chipping away at a block of marble. You begin with a block of stone a story high, and then carve away piece by piece until what's left? A woman, just human-sized. So was she a femme fatale, or maybe she was just a blonde bimbo manipulated by the more powerful men in her life, her father and her brother? What if the answer is neither? What then? What's left? There's a painting that I think embodies the strange marriage between the perception and the reality of Lucrezia Borgia. 
It's called Lucrezia Borgia Reigns in the Vatican in the Absence of Pope Alexander VI. It was painted around 1910 by Frank Cadogan Cowper, and it currently hangs in the Tate in London. The painting is of a Vatican throne room, painted almost entirely in reds. The cardinals surrounding the papal throne look more like flames. And in the center of the canvas, where the Pope should be sitting, is instead his daughter, Lucrezia Borgia, a vision in orange-yellow, almost glowing golden. The artist's rendition is actually based on a true event in which Lucrezia scandalized the Vatican by taking her father's place in his seat. But the artist imagined something one step further. The artist painted two cardinals pulling away at either side of Lucrezia's dress to allow a friar to kiss her feet. That almost certainly never happened. But in the painting, it is, at least to my eyes, unambiguously sexual symbolism. Whatever was true or false in terms of rumors about Lucrezia's life, that symbolic implication at least was true. Here was a woman more sexual than 16th century Italy wanted her to be, more powerful than they wanted her to be. And, glowing or not, nobody could take their eyes off of her. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. In the 15th century, the notion of a pope having children was considered far less outrageous than it might sound today. Though Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia had gone through the motions, briefly pretending that the four children that he had with his married mistress were his nephews and niece, eventually he lifted his hands and admitted that he had four children, Cesare, Giovanni, Lucrezia, and Joffrey. Their mother, Venosa, was a notoriously famous beauty of Rome, and though she was, as previously mentioned, married, she was also the favorite of Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia. At this point, the Borgias had limited but significant power. The Borgias already had a pope in their family tree, Pope Calixtus III, but they were still considered outsiders in Italian society. For one, they weren't really Italian. The Borgias were actually Catalan, and they had lived in the formerly Moorish, currently Spanish, Kingdom of Valencia. As they did with most other Catalans, Italians thought of the Borgias as tight-fisted and ruthless. They referred to them as Marani, or secret Jews. And so, even as the Borgias became more powerful in Italy, they remained a tight-knit family above all else. They spoke Catalan amongst themselves, and they had their own internal loyalties. They were all raised believing in an us-versus-them mentality. If you've watched or read Game of Thrones, certain parallels will reveal themselves soon enough, and I suspect that George R. R. Martin might have been a little bit inspired by the Borgia family, especially when building the personalities of the Lannisters. When Lucrezia Borgia was 12, her father was elected Pope Alexander VI. 
There were rumors even then that he had bought the seat with bribery or that it was nepotism because his uncle had been pope already. And both of those things may have been factors. But probably a more important factor is that Borgia was seen as a centrist candidate. The other powerful families vying for pope had their own rivalries and loyalties. Borgia wasn't too pro-France or too Milanese. The Borgias just mostly looked out for the Borgias. And a brief note, from this point in the story, I'll be referring to Lucrezia's father by his papal name, Alexander, for clarity, even though he was born Rodrigo. At this point in history, there was very little stigma attached to the fact that Alexander's four children were bastards, just as there was really no stigma attached to the fact that Alexander was about to use his newfound powers as pope to advance his family's position. It's what all the popes did. In this case, advancing his family meant advantageous marriages. By the time she was 12, Lucrezia had already been engaged three times. It wasn't hard to find her matches. Even from a young age, she had golden hair and bright white teeth, She was charming and well-educated. But then her father was elected pope, and her prospects got a whole lot better. In 1493, when Lucrezia was just 13 years old, she was married to a man nearly 15 years her senior, a man named Giovanni Sfarza of the powerful Sfarza family. Giovanni was the nephew of the Duke of Milan, And even though Lucrezia and her new husband remained in Rome, it was important for the Borgias to have allies in northern Italy. But as it turned out, that alliance was more temporarily important. Lucrezia and Giovanni had been married only a year when the Sfarzas began to seem like a liability. A lot of complicated political maneuvering is happening behind the scenes in Italy at this moment, but to make a long story short, the Duke of Milan allied with the King of France against the Pope. Still in Rome, Giovanni was stranded, metaphorically, in the belly of the beast. Not quite sure if he was supposed to ally himself with his uncle, the Duke of Milan, or with his wife's powerful family. But for the Borgias, their choice of loyalty was entirely clear. Lucrezia's older brother, Cesare, met with her one afternoon and calmly explained to her that her husband would need to be killed so that she could be remarried to someone who could actually help them politically. Lucrezia panicked. She liked her husband. They were genuinely fond of each other. And so she ran home that afternoon and warned him. Giovanni fled to Milan disguised as a beggar. We can just imagine Pope Alexander putting his head in his hand and sighing, saying something like, Darn, it's going to be so much harder for you to get out of that marriage now, Lucrezia. Now the Borgias only had one option to get Lucrezia out of that marriage. That option was annulling it. But them being Catholic and their father being the Pope meant the only way to do that was to claim that the marriage had never been consummated. Well, that was a bit of a laugh. There was absolutely no reason to believe that that was true, and all of Rome knew it. No, it's true, Cesare said. It's Giovanni's fault. He is impotent. Ignore the fact that he had already been married once and his first wife died in childbirth. 
He never consummated the marriage with my sister because he's impotent. Trust me. The Borgias were going to force Giovanni Sparza to sign a statement to that effect, which he eventually did, but not without lashing out in his own way, saying that maybe the Borgias only wanted Lucrezia single so that they could have her for themselves. Alexander, her father, and Cesare. The Borgias were notoriously close, weren't they? This is about when the rumors of incest began, but those rumors would continue on for the rest of Lucrezia's life. While the annulment was working itself out, Lucrezia needed to get out of the picture, just to be put aside so that no one in Rome would think about her for a little while. And, you know, maybe just in case she had gotten pregnant from her first husband, to make sure that no one could see it, lest they believe that the marriage had been consummated. And so Lucrezia was sent to a nunnery outside the city. But two unfortunate incidents occurred in the months after Lucrezia's separation from her first husband that would begin the tarnish on her reputation. First, on Valentine's Day, 1498, a young Spaniard named Pedro Calderon, known colloquially as Peroto, who worked in the Pope's chamber, was found dead in the Tiber River, along with one of Lucrezia's ladies. Speculation ran rampant that Lucrezia had been having an affair with Peroto, and that her brother Cesare had had him killed in order to protect his sister's reputation. Although, before you think I'm accusing Cesare of brotherly kindness, protecting Lucrezia's reputation really just meant protecting her marriage prospects. And then, the second incident. A Borgia baby was born, and no one seemed to be sure whose it was. The baby was initially known as the Infans Romanus, or the Infant of Rome, but he would later be known as Giovanni. There are a lot of Giovannis in this story. The most likely explanation for the baby is that he was Pope Alexander's child, and the Pope even admitted so much in a papal bull later in his life. But early on, right after the baby appeared, they said it was Cesare's child, out of wedlock before he got married. But Lucrezia had been sent away, and her marriage being unconsummated was essential to her family's political dealings. What if, people thought, the baby was hers, and it was a result of, I don't know, incest with her father? Or, and here you can cue the Game of Thrones theme song, what if it was a result of incest with her brother? Again, there was no evidence to support this, and most historians agree now the child was almost certainly Pope Alexander's, possibly Cesare's, but really probably not Lucrezia's. Still, the Borgias had power, and other families of Italy wanted that power. Rumors were a weapon. When Lucrezia turned 18, it was time for her to get married again. And again, death, tragedy, and rumors would follow behind her. This time, Pope Alexander wanted to secure the Borgia position with the royal family of the Kingdom of Naples. Naples was in a precarious position under the threat of King Charles VIII of France, 
who claimed the throne for himself through a certain inherited lineage. Not to get too deep into the weeds of these politics, but the Pope's youngest son, Geoffrey, had already married the daughter of the King of Naples, a girl named Sancha, although seeing her name spelled out, S-A-N-C-I-A, you might be forgiven for mispronouncing it Sansa. Joffrey and Sansa is another fun little layer of Game of Thrones intrigue into the mix. But back to Lucrezia. Lucrezia was going to get married to the King of Naples' illegitimate son, Alfonso, Duke of Bichelier, the half-brother of Sancha. But that marriage wasn't the Pope's endgame. The thing was, their dad, Alfonso and Sancha's dad, wasn't the king anymore. He had died, and their uncle became the king. And the new king had a daughter, Carlotta, that the Pope really wanted for his eldest son, Cesare. So, as sort of a consolation prize, he was marrying Lucrezia to the illegitimate but still titled and important Duke of Bichelier, hoping it would be a foothold for Carlotta to get with Cesare. That marriage for Cesare never worked out, although Cesare did end up having an affair with Sancha, his younger brother's wife. In her defense, relatively, she was 16 when she was married to a 12-year-old, Joffrey. But what can I say? The Borgias were very scandalous and very messy. As for Lucrezia and husband number two... It seemed like she had finally struck the jackpot, at least in terms of her own personal happiness. Another quick aside, there is just an influx of Alfonso's in this story, and so for clarity, husband number two will be referred to by his title, Bichelier. Lucrezia and Bichelier were only a year apart in age, and he was known to be tall and graceful, athletic and handsome. Their wedding was private, but we know details from Sancha's writing. We know that Lucrezia wore a dress with jewel-studded sleeves and a French-style robe with black thread and a red velvet trim. Pearls encircled her belt and her neck, and her cap was embroidered with glittering gems. She wore a gold circlet crown in her golden blonde hair. The groom wore a brooch that his new bride had given him. The festivities were as magnificent as you might expect from a Borgia party. After the ceremony, there was another raucous after-party, and marvelous tableaus were set up to amuse the guests throughout the Borgia apartments. In one tableau, there was an intricate fountain. Another was a room all made up to look like the woods, and members of the Borgia family dressed up as wild animals. Cesare dressed as a unicorn. His younger, cuckolded little brother was given a sea goose costume. For a short while, Lucrezia and her husband were living a life together. She lost a pregnancy, but eventually she became pregnant again. The two lived together in relative happiness in Rome. But politics were still happening in the world all around them. This is going to be a vast oversimplification, but I hope it at least serves as a decent overview. Naples was in a precarious position. It was under threat by King Charles VIII of France, 
who claimed the throne of Naples for himself through a sort of convoluted lineage. But then King Charles VIII died in France without a direct heir, which meant that his second cousin once removed, Louis XII, inherited France. And he also inherited Charles's claim to the throne of Naples. But there was something else Louis XII wanted. Brittany. Brittany wasn't part of France at the time, and the former king only had it because he had been married to the Duchess of Brittany, named Anne. Well, great, Louis XII would marry Anne of Brittany too. The only problem was, Louis was already married. There's a quick answer to that, you just need the Pope to take care of it. An alliance was born. Pope Alexander annulled Louis's marriage so he could marry the Duchess of Brittany. And in exchange, Louis gave the Pope's son, Cesare, a duchy, military assistance, and a bride, a princess of Navarre. All of this is to say, through a convoluted series of events, the Borgias became allied with France, and they supported the French claim to Naples, and not the claim of the Italian royal family of Naples, the family of Lucrezia's husband. Bichelier sensed that the winds were changing, and he fled Rome when his wife was six months pregnant. The Pope was furious and sent out men to find him. They couldn't. And yet, even though he was home free, Bichelier returned to Rome for the birth of his child at his wife's behest. The way it looked later, it looked like Lucrezia lured him back into a trap. As the sun set on July 15th in 1500, Bichelier was strolling up the steps of St. Peter's Basilica, when before he reached the threshold, he was accosted by a group of assassins. The assassins stabbed him in the head, in the right arm, and in the leg. While Bichelier bled on the stairs, the assassins tried to snatch him up and carry him away, But then guards came out, and the assassins fled. There wasn't much time to save his life, or any time at all. He needed to get to safety, and so he was brought inside the Borgia Tower, where his sister Sancha and his wife Lucrezia wept over his body while he slept. Lucrezia knew that her brother was behind it, but there was nothing she could do about that. All she could do in the meantime was prepare her husband's food just to be sure it wasn't poisoned and send for her husband's own doctors from Naples to take care of him. And for a few weeks, it looked like he was getting better. Bichelier was going to survive his wounds. Cesari, ever acting innocent, came one morning to visit his brother-in-law. He leaned in close to give Bichelier a kiss on the cheek. What didn't happen at lunch can still happen at dinner, he whispered. A month later, Bichelier was strangled in his bed. The assassins were never caught. Lucrezia was heartbroken. She went into deep mourning, signing letters to her family as La Infelicissima, the extremely unhappy one. She was only 20 years old, and she had already had two husbands. Maybe she was cursed, like everyone said. 
But her family wouldn't let her mourn for long. In 1502, she was married yet again to another Alfonso, Alfonso d'Este, who would later become the Duke of Ferrara. Alfonso, for his part, was, and I'll say maybe justifiably, hesitant to marry into this incredibly conniving, bloodthirsty family. It objectively had not worked out for either of his predecessors. The Duke sent a group of ambassadors to Rome to scope Lucrezia out, and the report came back spotless. One of his ambassadors wrote of Lucrezia, quote, She is a wise lady, and it is not only my opinion, but that of the whole company. And so Alfonso agreed to the marriage. It turns out he had a lot in common with Lucrezia. He was only 24 and a widower himself. The pair were married, and for the first time in Lucrezia's life, she lived away from Rome and away from the direct influence of her powerful father and brother. As the Duchess of Ferrara, Lucrezia soared. She was accomplished and widely praised for her beauty and leadership. This would be the longest marriage of her life, lasting 17 years, though neither party was faithful. Lucrezia, in classic Borgia fashion, had an affair with her husband's brother-in-law, the husband of her husband's sister. And of course, she also had an affair with the much older poet whose love letters to her, Lord Byron, would one day call the prettiest love letters in the world. But there was one dark spot to her life in Ferrara. She was never allowed to see her son, Rodrigo, again, her firstborn that she had with her second husband. The idea coming into her third marriage was that she still had to sort of ostensibly present herself as if she was a virgin, even though by that point everyone knew the jig was up. Throughout Rodrigo's entire young life, she begged to see him. She would send him gifts and letters. She sent him a tutor from university in Ferrara. She didn't get to see him until he was 12 years old, after he already died. Lucrezia was able to travel to where he had been living, where she stayed for a month in mourning. Lucrezia's own end would be far less dramatic than her life. She outlived her oldest son, her father, and her older brother, Cesare, and over the course of her multiple marriages, she would have eight known children, at least one stillborn and several miscarriages. It would be during the birth of what might have been her ninth child, Isabella, that Lucrezia, then 39, would finally fall. It was the burden of all women, the risk of childbirth, that looming specter. Her father, Pope Alexander, died in 1503, and with his death came the fall in power for the whole Borgia clan. Lucrezia's brother, Cesare, had been forced to flee Italy, and he attempted to capture Navarre in a military battle. In 1507, he was chasing an enemy group of knights, only to be ambushed and attacked, killed by a spear. The enemy men stripped him of all of his fine clothing and valuables, and left him alone with just a single red tile covering his genitals and the leather mask that he wore later in life 
to cover the half of his face that had become grossly disfigured thanks to syphilis. With the deaths of Cesare and Pope Alexander came the death of Borgia's central power and protection. The rumors and stories about Lucrezia had always been there, but now more quickly came the slander and accusations. Some of the stories were probably warranted. The Borgias as a whole were murderous and promiscuous. But Lucrezia would always be cast as the femme fatale, the murderous black widow. It's an archetype so compelling, so romantic, that sometimes it's hard to find the woman underneath. That's the story of Lucrezia Borgia, but stick around after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit more about the overall legacy of the Borgias. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. Lucrezia has been immortalized in books and plays and operas hundreds of times. But her brother Cesare has an even more impressive literary legacy. Cesare had been ruthless in his pursuit of power, using his father's papal armies and his own mercenaries to expand his land and his family's influence. Cesare was so notable that he caught the interest of the political theorist Niccolo Machiavelli. It was Cesare Borgia who inspired what would become Machiavelli's most famous work. Some say that Machiavelli wrote it ironically as a tongue-in-cheek critique of power. Plenty of people take it completely earnestly, but Machiavelli had watched Cesare Borgia operate, and he would use that as his playbook, his template, when he sat down to write his treatise, The Prince.
Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends.